0: We want to begin, and you can go ahead and pat yourself on the back because after the next forty-ish minutes, you will have made it through the entire book of Judges, which is quite an accomplishment. And we're going to begin, um, or we, so we're going to be in chapter twenty and twenty-one. We're going to finish the book today, and it's fitting because today is actually the first Sunday of Advent um, if you follow or observe the Christian calendar, which is when the Christmas season really begins. And it's somewhat fitting that we begin Advent um, with the end of Judges and kind of a dark story. Because Advent typically begins in the dark. Um, You start at a place of darkness, longing and waiting for the coming of Jesus. And from the beginning of the days of Adam and Eve, they looked forward to and longed for Jesus and for this Messiah to come and to save them. And now we, after Jesus has come, long and wait for him to come back again and make right everything that's gone wrong. But we begin in the dark, and we begin in a dark story about vengeance, at least on the surface. And we we typically, as a people, tend to love a good story about vengeance, from the Count of Monte Cristo to John Wick. Um, Whenever there's somebody who's been wronged, whether their friend betrayed them and they're thrown in prison or somebody's taken away one of their family members and now they've got to go on a rampage to get justice. And those are stories that are as old as time. But what we're going to see in this passage is what really happens when we start to seek vengeance apart from God. And really when we start to seek anything apart from God, where does that lead us? And so if you would, you can turn in your Bibles um, to the end of Judges. We're going to read 20 through 21, which is kind of our normal habit to read these all the way through, um, just because it's God's Word um, and we value it. And since this is what we're here to do, you're not here really to hear from me. Um, We're here to hear what God has to say. Um, So if you would, if you're able, just stand with me um, and we'll read all of chapter 20 and 21. And then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people and all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night, and they meant to kill me. And they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces, and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Now behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man saying, none of us will go to his tent. None of us will return to his house, but this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go against it by lot. We will take 10 men of 100 throughout all the tribes of Israel and a 100 of 1,000 and 1,000 of 10,000 to bring provisions to the people that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin came out to the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities that day twenty-six thousand men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered seven hundred chosen men. And among these seven hundred chosen men were those left-handed who could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered four hundred thousand men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. And the people of Israel rose and went into the battlefield and inquired of the Lord, "Who shall go up first? to fight against the people of Benjamin. And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. And the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin, and the men of Israel drew the battle line against them at Gibeah. And the people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept for the Lord until evening. They inquired of the Lord, Shall we draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. And the people of Israel came near against Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went out from Gibeah in the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All those were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. And they sat before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening. They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of God inquired of the Lord. For the ark of the covenant of God was there. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more in battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? Or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I'll give them into your hand. And Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin in the third day, and set themselves in array against Gibeah as other times. The people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes to Bethel and the other to Gibeah in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. The people of Benjamin said, they are routed before us as the first. But the people of Israel said, let us flee and draw them from the city and the highways. And all the men of Israel arose from their place and set themselves in the array of Baltimore. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Eregeba. And they came to Gibeah, 10,000 men out of Israel, but the battle was hard. And the Benjamin did not know that the disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All those were men who drew the sword. And so the people of Benjamin saw they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush. They had set against Gibeah. And the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. And the men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. And the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke arise from the city. And the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. And they said, surely they're defeated before us as the first battle. But when the signal began to rise... Out of the city, a column of smoke. Benjamin looked behind them, and behold, the whole city went up in smoke to heaven. And the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Whenever they turned their backs on the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroyed in their midst. Surrounding the Benjamites, they destroyed them and trod them down from Noah as far as opposite Gibeah from the east. Eighteen thousand men of Benjamin fell, all of the men of valor. So they turned and fled towards the wilderness from the rock of Ramon, and 5,000 men were cut down on the highways. They were pursued hard from Gidon. 2,000 of them struck down. And all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled towards the wilderness at the rock of Ramon and remained at the rock of Ramon for four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the the sword. The city, men and beasts, and all that they found. And all the towns that they found, they set on fire. And the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah none of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God. And they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. And the next day the people rose early and they built an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, one tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left? Since we've sworn by the Lord, we will not give them any of our daughters for wives. And they said, Well, is there one of the tribes of Israel that didn't come to the Lord at Mizpah?" And behold, one had come to the camp. No one had come to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. So the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Gabesh Gilead was there, so the congregation of twelve thousand sent their bravest men and commanded them Go and strike the inhabitants of Gabesh Gilead with the sword, and also the women and the little ones. And this is what you shall do every male and every woman that is lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Gebesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by line with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. And the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the rock of Ramon and proclaimed peace to them. Benjamin returned at that time and they, came to the, they gave them the women who were saved alive from the women of Gibesh gilead and they were not enough for them. The people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. And the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do? For wives, for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin. And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe would not be blotted out. Yet we can't give them wives from our daughters, for the Lord, people of Israel, had sworn, cursed is he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there's a yearly feast to the Lord at Shiloh, which is north at Bethel, east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, south of Labona. And they came and commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go, lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. And if the daughters of Shiloh come out and dance, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or brothers come and complain to us, well, we'll say, grant them graciously, because we didn't take each man of them, his wife in battle, and neither did you give to them, else you would be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives, according to their number, from the dancing they carried off. Then they went, returned to their inheritance, rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from that time, every man to his tribe and family. They went out, every man to his inheritance. But in those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would um, be here this morning, that you would help um, illuminate your word to us. That you would help explain and us understand what this strange and bizarre story has to teach us. Not just about ourselves, but ultimately about you and what you would have us do. And pray this in your name. Amen. You can take a seat. So our first point, um, if you're taking notes, is that ungodly vengeance leads to disaster. That ungodly vengeance leads to disaster. And we begin kind of summarizing this. I know it's long and there's a lot of things kind of going on in this story. Basically what we have is, if you remember from last week, if you were here, it was a very dark chapter involving a city coming together and they uh, abuse and assault a woman. And then she's chopped up and sent out to the land. So now this is kind of a continuation of that story. They come together and they hear about the evil that happened in 19. And so they say, well, what are we going to do? And the guy gives a report and so they decide, well, let's go try and get these guys. And Benjamin says, not on our watch, we'd rather fight you. And so the whole nation goes to civil war. And they fight and they kind of go back and forth and it's battles back and forth, back and forth. And then finally they win, they destroy the army of Benjamin, but they don't let up and they go and kill almost every Benjamite they can find until there's only 600 left. But then they kind of feel bad, realize some disasters happen, and think, well, we need to find some wives for these guys. And so they search for a bunch of loopholes, finally give them to them, and then everyone goes home, and it's not quite a happy ending. Just how it ends of telling us, well, everyone's doing what's right in their eyes. There's not a happily ever after here. The story isn't meant for us to go and do what they did. But it's meant to teach us in part that ungodly vengeance leads to Disaster. And this is, again, it's tied to last week's story of 19. So the nations got all of, they got their, they got their mail, and so all of the people come out, and they get together at Mizpah and they meet in an assembly, and in 23, they say, well, we've heard, and they ask this Levite, well, tell us, how did this evil happen? Tell us, what's going on, man? Like, what is the real story? And so he tells the story, but notice that how he explains it. If you remember, because what the Levite says had happened isn't quite how the story unfolded. And he says, and for, well, I came there and the leaders of Gibeah, which it wasn't the leaders, it was the whole town. Well, they surrounded the house against me and they meant to kill me. So they didn't mean to kill him. They meant to assault him, which is different. And then they violated my concubine. He doesn't mention that he shoved her out the door. You notice that part. And she's dead which is part of why I think he killed her. He just says she's dead. He doesn't even dare to say, well, they killed her. And so I took a hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces, and sent her out throughout the country. So he gives this report, but you notice all the things he doesn't say. And then he goes on to say, well, behold, you people of Israel, all of you give your advice and counsel here. He doesn't want to have any part. He just wants to, he doesn't even tell them what to do as a priest. He just says, well, what do you think we should do? And so they decide, well, 10 We're going to come. We're going to get vengeance. We're going to repay Gibeah for all the outrage they have committed. They're going to go and deal out justice. But you notice what they don't do. They don't question him. They don't interrogate him to get more of the story to see his things fall apart. They, They don't ask more questions. They just take his word for it. They also don't ask God. They don't go and inquire of the priests and inquire of the ark and inquire, hey God, what should we do? What is your justice? What what should we do here? They don't turn to the Bible, they don't open up the law of Moses to see what the next action should be. They just decide they're going to take care of this themselves. And, and we look and yet if they had turned to Deuteronomy 3235 it would remind them, "Hey, vengeance is the Lord's, it's not yours." And it would tell them how this is supposed to happen. But we see how unified they are. Over and over it says all of the people and all the people and all of the tribes and they're in an assembly. They all get together. And this hasn't happened at any time in this book so far. There's been judge after judge after judge and enemy army after enemy army and oppressor after oppressor. And yet at no time has Israel decided to get all together to do something about it. And yet when they finally all get together, it's for a civil war. It's not to fight the Canaanites. It's not to fight the people God told them to fight from the beginning of the book. It's to fight each other. And it tells us there are 400,000 men here. That's way bigger than any army that has ever faced them at all. The biggest one that Gideon fought was the Amorites when there's 125,000. And that felt innumerable and way too many. Well, they've got four times that much the whole time. At any time, if they just decided, hey, maybe we should obey God, guys, they could have taken care of everything. This reveals to us part of their sinfulness. Their unity finally comes together, but it's not really for godliness. It's at a bad time to fight each other. So they go to Benjamin in 2012, and the tribe sent men to kind of to ask them and say, what is this evil that's taking place among you? Give up the men who did this, these worthless fellows, so we can put them to death. So that, that part's good. The men who did this should die. This is part of God's law because this is an incredible evil. But look at Benjamin's response. They wouldn't listen, and they came out together to go to battle. He said, no, we'd rather go to civil war. We'd rather fight than give, turn over these evil men. We'd rather divide our nation than stop sinning. We don't want to see our team lose. We don't want to see the tribe of Benjamin have anything negative about them. We'd rather fight you guys instead. And so before they start, before they fight Benjamin, there's this kind of back and forth, right, where they go and fight, and then they ask God, and then they go and fight, doesn't go well, and they ask God, and it's kind of strange, like, what is is that about? But if you look in the beginning when they, in 18, when they ask, they go up and they inquire to God, but notice what they don't ask and how they ask. They say, God, who should go first to fight? They don't say, hey, God, should we go fight them as they normally do? and should do, hey God, if we go fight them, are you going to give them into our hands? Are you going to give us victory? They just say, hey, we're going to go fight them, God, uh, but we're just curious about the order. Who do you think should go first? So God says, well, Judah. And then they lose. And losing is always a sign that they are sinning. It's always a sign they need to repent. It has been throughout their whole history with Israel. And God told them in his word, if you lose in battle, it's because you've sinned and you need to repent and then come back and ask me what to do. So they're just assuming God's giving them victory. So it's a disaster, the, these, this way smaller army, to Israel, they're routed, and they go back to God again. And this time they're weeping, so that, that's a little better, right? And they ask, well, should we draw near to fight our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And God says, yeah, go. But if you notice, they're not really repenting either, they're weeping But they're not making sacrifices yet. They're not admitting that they're sinful. They're just, the the kind of weeping makes it seem as if they're just sad about what's happened. And this also fits because it's what they've done all throughout the book. In many of these cycles, there's times where they're being oppressed and they just weep. It doesn't say they wept and then they got rid of their idols and they repented and then came to God. This is just they wept because they were sad. And so they lose again as another judgment of God. And so finally, the third time they come back and they finally kind of got it. They go to Bethel where the ark is. Then they fast, which is a symbol of, you know, trying to seek after God and acknowledging that something is wrong. They offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now they're making sacrifices. Now they're acknowledging, okay, God, we get it. We've sinned, we're sinful. And then they go and ask and say, well, shall we go out once more to fight our brothers or should we not? Now they're actually willing to listen to what God has to say. Before, it seems much clearer like, okay, God, you know, just kind of rubber stamp us. We're supposed to pray, you know, before we have our meeting, so we'll pray, but we're not really interested in what you have to say, God. We've already decided what we're doing, but, you know, here's a formality. That's basically what they were doing at this point, but now God finally tells them, go, tomorrow I'll give them into your hand. So now they have blessing. And I'm not going to go into all of the battle because it's, it's elaborate. We don't have time for all of it. They basically set a trap and an ambush and Benjamin loses and Israel wins. And the city is completely destroyed, it tells us in 37. The city that has committed this evil, the city that should be under judgment, that should face this, they are wiped out, rightly, in 37. But they keep going. It's not enough. And this is where their vengeance turn, it turns into vengeance and no longer justice and becomes ungodly. Not just because they weren't interested in asking God's opinion in the first place. But now they keep going way too far. And it'll eventually only 600 men of Benjamin are left alive. Because it tells us over and over, well, they just kept pursuing and they kept pursuing and they kept pursuing. And 600 guys get away in the wilderness and hide in some rocks and just live out there for six months. And this is when they stop. Then they turn in 2048... They can't catch those, and some got away, so they turn around and decide, let's get everybody else, and they strike them with the edge of the sword. The city, the men and the beasts, and all that they found in all of the towns they found, they set on fire. Every single Benjamite city, and this is where it starts to turn into into genocide. They're killing every man and woman and child that they can find. They kill everything and set it all on fire, and by the end, there's only 600 left, and that's it. Now, why would they do that? Well, we don't really know It doesn't tell us. We, we know it's because they're doing whatever is right in their own eyes. But it's probably, partially I think they're doing it um, because they were probably so angry that they kept losing. That they lost so much. Maybe they thought this was easy and so many thousands of their troops had been killed that they didn't think should have and so they wanted payback. But their vengeance has gone above and beyond what God said. And the aftermath is a complete disaster. We have a tribe of Benjamin. One of the 12 tribes of Israel is completely decimated and done. And unless God miraculously shows up to help them, they will disappear off the face of the earth. Which again is irony, ironic because this is what Israel was supposed to do against the Canaanites. This is how they were supposed to treat all of the other nations that God had judged and said, hey, go decimate them, do this, burn all of their cities, kill all of the people there so that they can't reproduce anymore and they'll be wiped out. Yet the only time they decide to obey in this whole book, they do it to their own people, not to the people God told them to. They go above and beyond and it's a sad irony that they're only holy wars against themselves and so then they come and, and they want to find a solution to their problem. Right? And the problem, it's made worse not just because they've done this and they've killed so many people, but because much like Jephthah, they've made some foolish vows. And so in 20, 1, they we learn that they've sworn at Mizpah that no one shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. Again, that seems to happen without asking God what he thought. Without asking God if they should have done that, if they needed to do that, they decided that that's what's going to happen. So to never intermarry with this tribe again, and their foolishness is revealed because if they don't, the tribe of Benjamin's going to disappear or they're going to have to intermarry with some of these other tribes, which they're not supposed to. So what do they do? How do they respond to this? Are they going to weep? Are they going to repent? Are they going to go to God and ask God his opinion? God, what would you do? How are you going to save us? How are you going to deliver this? How are you going to make this happen? Nope. They go in 21.3 and they said, oh Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened? That today there should be a tribe lacking in Israel that really that why is kind of blaming God. They have the audacity to blame God for their current circumstance. They're going around saying, God, I don't understand how this has happened. I didn't realize that man. when we killed literally every Benjamite that we found and we burnt all of their cities to the ground and only a couple of them got away. I didn't realize that, that would mean they were all dead. This is so horrible. How could you have let this happen, God? They blame God for all of the murder they've committed. They don't ask God for help. They don't repent. They're just like a child who's facing the consequences of their own actions and is just mind-blown that this could happen. How could you let this happen? Well, this is what you've done. And instead of repenting, they start looking for loopholes in five. And the people of Israel say, well, what tribe didn't come up here? Because we all swore an oath. So maybe there's somebody here who didn't say the words. And then we can give their daughters over and that'll work. this is going to lead to even more disaster. They want to know who didn't come. And it's interesting, too, to notice they didn't really care about this oath before. Before this point, they weren't like, okay, anyone who didn't come, we need to go wipe them out and kill them, too. But now that it's convenient or now they're in trouble, now suddenly they're interested in finding out, well, who didn't swear this oath? Perfect. This one town that didn't come, Jabesh gilead It's another small town. It's also interesting that it's got Gilead in the name which should remind us of Jephthah again of foolish vows and the disaster that it leads to so they raise an army, they go against this town and they kill it and all of the women and the young ones, so they kill everyone in this town except for 400 virgins and this is viewed as a big success and the solution to their problems more sinfulness more people have to die because too many people have died and the only way out of it is more more death Not because God told them to, but this is their, in their eyes, this is what's right. But the people are sad. 400 is not enough for 600. Their mouth is off. They need to find 200 more. So again, here's another chance they have to kind of repent, go to God, ask for help. But instead, they go searching for more loopholes. Well, okay, what else could we do? So they find one and say, well, 2119. Well, hey, there's a yearly feast where people are, you know, worshiping and honoring God. You know, it's not, maybe we should go to that and repent and seek God's face and see what he has to say. It's, no, let's, here, Benjamin, go, in 2120, go lie in ambush in the vineyard and watch. And if some young women come out to dance, to, this is presumably something they're doing as part of their worship towards God, go and snatch them, and that can be your wife. They tell them, this is what you're going to do. Take these women from their worship of God rightly, and then they can be your wives. That's what we're going to do. And this is the loophole. So then when their daughter, you know, their brothers or their fathers come and complain, we'll just say, well, you know, be gracious. We didn't take them from you, and you didn't give them, so technically we haven't violated any laws. And look what what righteous actions we've taken. This is what they do. Since you can't give them their daughters, they tell Benjamin to kidnap them because, you know, giving them is bad. But kidnapping's good, as long as their hands don't touch any of it, is how they've worked this out, again, in their own eyes, to decide that this is right. They have a nice, good biblical argument um, for why this is awesome, and why these fathers and brothers should just celebrate, that this this kidnapping, and really, at one level, this is sex trafficking, is actually just wonderful, great news, because everyone is going to be happy, you know, except for the women, I'm assuming. I don't know if any of you women would love to be kidnapped and then forced to marry somebody else. It seems not great, to say the least. So they do it. In 24, the people of Israel depart. Every man to his tribe and family, and they went out to his inheritance. Mission accomplished. Woohoo! They make it seem as if it's this kind of happy ending. But this isn't uh, like Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, if you remember that musical it's not a cute musical where it's all happy and this is lovely and you know they'll sing a couple songs and it'll be nice at the end. If you haven't seen that, you can go look it up or watch it later. I like some of the songs from that. I was thinking of it as I read this passage because it sounded familiar. But this is not like that. This is ungodly vengeance leading to complete disaster. Because the result of their vengeance and sinful actions is not justice. We see, well, one woman was assaulted and murdered... And so what we need to do is we need to then kill and murder ten thousands of other people and thousands of other women, and then we'll let some women live, 600 of them, and we'll kidnap them and make them marry other people. And that's justice for that one death. I don't know how, in their eyes, they make that logic work, but that's what happens. It's not justice, it's horrible, and this is how the book ends in complete disaster because when we seek ungodly vengeance or really when we go about our own path and we don't seek after God and we just do whatever is right in our own eyes, the only place that can lead to is disaster. That's so why Scripture warns us, not just in Deuteronomy, but Romans twelve nineteen, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, and then quotes Deuteronomy, vengeance is mine. And part of the reason God warns us is so often we get justice wrong. When we just want vengeance, when we just want to do it and we don't care really what God thinks, we often, it can end poorly. But the deeper problem is really this whole story isn't just about vengeance and this. It's much deeper than that. It's a specific part of this chapter, so I can't just not mention it. But the deeper problem is point number two, that not submitting to God leads to disaster. That it's not submitting to God that leads to disaster. That is the larger problem and one of the particular ways that it worked out for them here is that how they are not submitting to Him in their seeking of justice and in their seeking of vengeance. And This point really just comes from the end in verse 25, the very last verse in this book. In those days, there's no king in Israel. Everyone does what's right in his eyes. No one's submitting to God. No one's listening to his law. No one's listening to God's commands. Everyone is just doing whatever it is that they really want to do. Whatever's right in their own eyes. Everyone can just, this is, you know, a libertarian paradise for some, at least, the guys who have swords. It's good for them. Everyone can just do whatever they want and who cares what anybody else has to say? Mostly God. We don't really care what he has to say. I'm just in charge of whatever I want. And this is why the book ends so dark and the evil is so great and the stories are so sad throughout this whole book is because this is what Israel has done. They do not care and they will not obey God. And when you don't obey God, when you don't submit to him, when you don't let him be the king, it leads to disaster. And the phrase of this book, at the end of it, it's intentional. We've heard versions of it these past 12 weeks as we've went through the book. Let me read some of them for you. In 2.11, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 3.7, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And 3.12, twice it says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 4.1, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. one, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 10.6, 1, the, 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 the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Thirteen one, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And finally here, everyone did what was right in his own sight. In his own eye. Uh, those words are are really the same it's it's just the Hebrew word for eyes or or sight it's all about what they see and they think well God sees what they have done as evil in God's eyes in his sight this is wrong and he said that over and over and over and over again but now they don't really care about God's sight they don't care about God's eyes or what he can see they only care about their own they say well in my eyes this is good and that failure to submission, it fuels everything bad in this book. It's not just they've abandoned God's laws. It's not just they've abandoned His Word. It's that they've abandoned God Himself as well. They aren't interested in anything God has to say. i want to talk about the first part of this verse as well in 25, because it's a phrase that's also repeated itself. In those days, there's no king in Israel. Now, some seem to have a hard time understanding this book. There are some who seem to think that the writer of the book of Judges is really just making a case for monarchy. As if this book is all about, you know, how we need a better form of government. And if we just improved our form of government, that is what is going to fix everything. Or maybe the, the author, some will say, was just they're a big fan of King David. And they don't like Saul, and Saul's from Benjamin, so they're trying to talk about, you know, why Saul is actually bad, but King David is the best. Now that we have King David, this is, this is everything we've ever dreamed of. That's why it keeps saying there's no king in Israel. But the problem is that Israel has a king. They just don't want to submit to him. They don't want to serve him. They have a king who has spokesmen and has laws and is supposed to be their ruler, and that's God. And they don't want to submit to him, and that's why it's led to disaster. But the problem is that this disaster is too big. Israel needs somebody to save them from this mess, from this darkness, from where they find themselves. And so what we see is the hope that, well, maybe one day there will be a king who can save us. Maybe. But the problem Israel has can't be solved by a human king. Not at all. If that was so, we'd, be having to, we'd read a different kind of Bible. All you need to do is read through Samuel, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, or First and 7, 2 Chronicles, really any of those. Um, but go read through all of those and tell me about the state of Israel. Tell me if it looks like the kings saved them. Or if now that the kings came, the evil was done and they've been delivered. I'll spoil it for you, um, they didn't. The entire story of kings and Samuel and David and Chronicles is that Israel needs a better king. There were some good kings, there were a lot of bad kings, but they need a different one. Judges tells us as well that Israel needs a better deliverer. They need a better savior, a better judge than Ophniel, than Barak, than Ehud, than Shamgar, than Gideon, than Samson, than Jephthah. Who do they need? They need Jesus. They need to submit and obey Jesus. Because without Jesus, this is where the path of it leads. If we don't submit to God, if we don't let him really be king, if we try to do everything on our own, it leads to where the book of Judges leads. Disaster. Suffering. Pain. And more and more and more sinfulness. So our last point, really, our application, kind of the whole book, but especially here is this. We need to submit to King Jesus. All of us need to submit to King Jesus. See, our lives don't have to look like the book of Judges. I really hope they don't. But the reality is that if we don't give our life to Jesus, if we don't repent of our sin, our lives will lead to chaos. That outside of the kingdom of God, there's only sin and death. There's nothing else. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, give your life to Jesus and it'll all be great. And it doesn't even mean that, you know, if you're not following God, then everything will fall apart. Sometimes it goes well, but that will not last long. It definitely will not last into eternity. But the good news for us is that Jesus is a good king. Jesus is a better king than we could possibly imagine. That that all that is good about the judges that we've read, they're flawed, they're, they're dark, there's a lot wrong, but there are some things that are really good even in some of these knuckleheads like Samson. And there's some good in the kings, even like David. David has a lot of sin in his life where there was a lot of good as well. But everything that was good is much better in Jesus. And everything that was lacking in all of these men is found in Jesus. He is a better king. Advent, it starts in the dark because we need a king. We need King Jesus. Jesus. And King Jesus is ruling and reigning on His throne, but we are waiting and longing for Him to come back and to set up His throne right here, now. And to set everything right. That's what we're longing for, and that's what we're going to start talking about um, next week. Our our Advent sermon series is going to be called The Coming King. We're going to be looking at uh, three chapters in Isaiah, chapter 60, 61, and 62, to see what those chapters tell us about the kind of King that Jesus is. We're going to see the ways that that it foreshadowed and it prophesied the kind of king that Jesus would be when he came the first time and some of the stuff that's yet unfulfilled that we're still waiting for Jesus to completely do. And what we'll find in all of that and the more that you look at Jesus that he is a gracious and a good king. Jesus is a king who has an open table. There's always a seat at Jesus' table for you. So there's the funny thing about Jesus that made the religious people not like him. He always invited sinners and prostitutes and the sick and the lame and the unwanted to come and eat and dine with him. Because ultimately that's who all of us are. Sinners who have found themselves at the table of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for, for all of us. He's a king who dies for us. He's not a king who sends people to die on his behalf while he sits back in his palace and drinks wine and and eats a great meal. He himself came down, stepped off of his throne, put away his crown, lived as a carpenter peasant, walked around mostly homeless, and then died for you and for me, for sinners and for the wicked, so that we could find salvation and true life. Now, our response to that and acknowledging who King Jesus is, what should we do? We should fall on our faces and submit to him. If you're not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus, I I wish that you would. I beg you to fall on your face and to submit to King Jesus. If you do know Jesus, which many of us here do, then we also still need to submit to Jesus. Trying to live your life not submitting to him leads to disaster. And as Christians, we still can forget that, oh yeah, I need to continually, every day, take up my cross, fall on my face, and obey the King. It's not about what I want. It's not about what I think is right. It is not about what is right in my eyes. It's about what's right in God's eyes. We have to submit to Him in everything. Now, a good question maybe to ask yourself is to ask yourself if Jesus can tell you no. Or maybe a better one would be, when was the last time Jesus told you no? Because there's a lot of times that we can go through the motions and we can act like we're submitting to Jesus and doing everything he wants. And, well, it seems like everything God wants me to do is just what I've wanted to do. Wow, what a coincidence. I wonder how that works. Which makes me wonder, maybe it's not God who's always agreeing with me. Maybe I'm not always listening to him. Because I often find that Jesus tells me no. Not just in things I want, but when there's sinful ways I want to respond or paths I want to go down, I continually find God saying, no, I don't want you to do that. And then I have a choice. Will, I'm a guy, will I submit to the king or do I want to be king? As believers we and unbelievers, we all need to fall on our faces and submit to the king. So in summary, where we've been this morning, we've seen that ungodly, ungodly revenge leads to disaster seeing that not submitting to God leads to disaster, and so what should we do? Well, we should submit to King Jesus to find salvation and to find the only hope and path we should walk in this life. And so our challenge for all of us is we need to just submit to the King because Jesus ultimately is our only hope in life and in death. So submit to the King. I invite our worship team to come up and to lead us um, and songs of praise to our king one last time. Lord, I pray that you would help us to submit to you, Jesus. Lord, would you give us the strength to kick ourselves off of the throne, to kick our idols off of the throne, to to reject all of the things that that we think or look right in our eyes, Lord, and instead to put you on the throne and to submit to you, to submit to your laws, to submit to your word, to go where you would have us go. To listen to you, would you tell us no? Lord, would you save us um, from the disaster that befalls Israel because they didn't listen to you? Not because we deserve it, but just because you're a good and gracious King who loves sinners like us. And I pray this all in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we worship our Savior and our King once more. What a glorious day that will be. And I can't wait to see it. We there's benediction from the end of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.